Well, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 1. Would you stand now for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. You may be seated. You won't be saying too much uh, to you this morning to to simply say that it's a natural human impulse to be deeply moved by the sight of people suffering. And that was driven home to me this past week as I was watching the images of that powerful storm that ripped through the state of Tennessee and left uh, at least over 20 dead and hundreds, if not more, without a home. But there was something in the midst of all of that coverage that I saw which really caught my attention. And that thing was a commercial about the sufferings of the storm. In fact, it was a commercial for an evangelical ministry which had been raised up to help the suffering. And the thing about that commercial which caught my attention was twofold. First of all, it was a, it was a very a dramatic commercial in the sense of the video imagery which, which captured uh, the carnage. The homes which look like rubble. The places where uh, people used to congregate, families used to live, were reduced to a pile of what looked like toothpicks. I saw one image, in fact, of of a piece of a telephone pole wedged into the door of a car. It didn't belong there. And then woven into this um, video imagery was um, in the backdrop playing the stories of those who had suffered. And they were full of dramatic emotion, weren't they? People speaking about how they had suffered and how they had just barely escaped with their lives. And so when you see something like that, it's natural to feel empathy And concerned. And I think one of the effective portions of that video or that commercial was to simply rally people to think about it. But it did something else which seems to me even more effective, which not just show the images of, um, of ruin and of the emotional and dramatic toll it took upon the lives of people, it called people to action. 
It called people to action after unfolding all that had happened in the backdrop of all this drama. What it did was say, there's something you can do. And I think by doing that, it wasn't just saying, there's something you can do, there's something you should do. So they gave a list of things. It says you can come down to, to Tennessee and volunteer to do some work. They said you can give money. You could donate equipment that was needed to help with the repairs. You could pray. They spoke about what you could pray for. You could pray for the people affected. You could pray for the resources that were needed. You could pray for those who would be serving. You see, the idea was to mobilize people to act. And I think it was grounded on on a couple of foundations. And one is, it's just um, a natural impulse to look upon the sufferings of others and to be moved. But more than that, once moved by sufferings, we must act. Once moved by sufferings, we must act. And that's what you see here as I take those ideas and seek to connect them together and sync them up. It seems to me that's precisely what we have witnessed to or illustrated here in the Apostle Paul in his actions, a connection. He's expressed a heart. He's expressed sympathy. He's expressed concern. He is expressing anguish over the Thessalonians and reading about their sufferings and their trials and the premature separations and all of these things that are going in the backdrop were led to have a natural concern for them. But you see, as we move on into our text here this morning, we can see that Paul forges a link between being emotionally moved to real effectual action. And I think that's what this text does for us this morning is teach the church something critical. And what our text does this morning is teach us that when the people of God are suffering affliction, it's time for the church not just to be concerned and moved with concern, but to move from concern to effectual action. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here as he responds to the situation in Thessalonia. He shows us how to take tangible action to relieve the suffering of those who are afflicted by life's difficulties. And so we're going to take that theme of ministering to the afflicted this morning and break it into a a couple of parts. And the first would be the urgency of ministering to the afflicted and then the manner of ministering to the afflicted. So we have here this morning the urgency and There's a real palpable sense of urgency. That's one of the things that we grasp hold of here. And I think the reason why the Apostle Paul strikes the note of urgency is because, as we're going to see here, the situation of affliction is a situation of potential spiritual peril. You see, the situation of affliction for the believer is the situation of potential spiritual peril. And that's why we have, first of all, the gripping emotional response which signals urgency. And we could see that in what Paul says in verse 1, when we could endure it no longer, and then the repetition of the same thought in verse 5, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer. There's your emotional response sounding the horn 
that something needs to happen here on account of the afflictions. But before we dig into that, I just would have us note the connection to the context because it does sort of set up for and remind us of why there's this sense of urgency. And the connection to context uh, begins at the very first word of uh, chapter 3, verse 1, therefore. And of course, therefore is, is reaching back to what Paul has just said in order to lead us forward into what he's about to say in terms of urgency and ministerial action by way of response. But we can just think of a few things here by way of review about what Paul says here in the prior text. And the thing is, first of all, Paul says about his relationship to these Thessalonians, it's one as spiritual orphaning. We said as we looked at uh, the translation there in verse 17 that it was non-literal, having been taken away from you. It's non-literal because uh, technically and literally what the Apostle Paul says, we've been orphaned. He's not conceiving of himself as the child of the Thessalonians. It's just the reverse of that. He's conceiving of himself in the position of a spiritual father to his children in the faith of Thessalonians. And what he says here is the grim reality that it feels like they have lost their children. They've been separated from them by death. And the language then is vivid and dramatic and expresses the deepest of concern and the heaviness of heart that he felt over the separation. And then secondly, we have uh, the statement here that in view of this having been ripped away from them in such an unnatural and violent fashion that the apostle says he tried to return. This is what you would expect, after all. Having been ripped away from people whom you love in an unexpected way, in an unplanned way, what you would expect is from the party that was the initiator of that relationship, that he'd seek to return. Well, the apostle said, we tried once and again, once or twice, time and over, he says. We tried to come back, and what happened? He said, well, Satan hindered. They tried but he tore up every road before him to get there. And then the third thing he says is about his pastoral longing for the church, that his deep regard, his deep aim or concern for them was their standing before the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day, clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And that was his burden of heart. That's what he longed for, for the Thessalonians. Well, that's fairly gripping stuff. That's um, fairly emotional and sort of dramatic. But, but I think all of that plays into the point here that we're considering when thinking about the urgency of the response to afflictions is there's an emotional component here which tells us that the alarm is being sounded when he says we could no longer endure it. And this word for endure is uh, one that's full of intensity. It suggests being uh, overwhelmed or inundated with difficulty. Some translate it bear no longer. Others try to draw out the dramatic sense of it by saying we're being tortured. That may be too strong, but I think it gets us started in the direction of understanding the deepness of the concern here. How Paul is moved 
by the urgency of the situation. And the urgency is not just expressed in emotion, but the urgency is expressed in the spiritual concern. In other words, the urgency is on account of what's at stake. Well, the reason why it's there is is fairly obvious from verse 3, when he speaks of no one be disturbed by these afflictions. And that word disturbed there is a word we're going to come back to in a moment. But really it speaks of uh, spiritual turbulence or a, a kind of violent shaking. Some take this to the extent of saying that you'll depart from faith. Uh, I'm not going to get into that just yet, but uh, one thing we want to grasp hold of is the force of the term and the violence of the term. And then the shaking is from a particular source, and that is from the afflictions. And this is one of those very intense words that we saw used repeatedly in our exposition of the book of Acts, that it has to do with tremendous distress of tribulations, of oppressions, of pains. And it could be a number of different manifestations. It could be physical difficulty. It could be social disturbances. It could be a physical persecution by outsiders. There's lots of different things that could be at play. But whenever the Bible calls a situation of difficulty affliction, it's not just speaking of the intensity of it. It's also describing and categorizing it as a spiritual matter. It's describing as a spiritual matter where the believer is subject to potential peril. That's what Paul is concerned about. The potential spiritual peril that's coming upon them for the sake of Christ. That's the ground of concern. Now, I want you to turn with me now to verse 5 and notice the basis of this concern expressed. And you can see that here in verse 5, as the Apostle says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for the fear that the tempter might have tempted you. And now we begin to really see here as the Apostle unfolds the nature of this and and the spiritual implication of it all is the thing he says that makes the situation so urgent is that the season of affliction is the occasion for satanic temptation. You see, when we hear that word temptation, we, we understand this morning that it means to be tempted to sin to be led into sin. We, we have uh, an example of this word over in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, where we are told that for 40 days, Jesus lived in the wilderness by Himself, and each day for 40 days, He was tempted to sin by the devil. So the thing about this term is that uh, it unfolds for us the potential spiritual peril, that affliction is a season in which Satan seeks to prey upon the believer to lead them into temptation and to lead them into sin. In other words, it's a season of satanic attack. It's interesting that the apostle is that concerned about them after speaking so powerfully in the prior portions of 1 Thessalonians so far, that they seem to have been genuinely saved. He talked about how the Word come in power to them and in the Holy Spirit and much conviction. 
But but when we hear this language, we hear deepest of of pastoral concern that, that Satan may seek to unseat that word and to lead these people who were so unashamedly willing to unite to Christ and identify with Christ to be tempted to go into sin. Now, the important thing for us to remember this morning is that even though Satan may be the tempter of the believer, and he certainly is, he can't lead you into sin. He can't make you deny your faith. That would require an act of will on your part. The devil doesn't make anybody do anything. But the thing here that Paul sounds the alarm about is that when you endure seasons of affliction for the sake of Christ, this is an ever-present danger. That instead of it being a season for you to firm your faith in Christ, sometimes under the watchful and sinister design of Satan, it turns into a season of spiritual damage to being led into sin. And that's what Satan seeks to make use of, to harm you spiritually. And so the apostle here, as he's thinking through the basis of this urgency of pastoral ministry, teaches us this morning about the peril or the potential peril of our own afflictions. And that's only reinforced in the rest of what we read about here in terms of what Paul says. He's concerned that the afflictions may have thwarted ministerial labor. I think it's of some interest to note that as the Apostle unfolds his reasoning for why he sent Timothy, we're going to get into that in a moment, as the pastoral response. I think it's important for us to notice here that the Apostle sends Timothy with a mission, and that's spiritual reconnaissance. Notice at the outset of verse 5, for This reason, when we could endure it no longer, I sent him to find out about your faith. Again, this is very sincere, it's very honest, it's very transparent, but one of the things the Apostle Paul expresses here is that he was wondering, have they given up the faith? One of the things that he was concerned about was it just a, an initial quick hearing of the word that was uh, accompanied with some sort of manifestation of joy, but not a deeply rooted hearing of the word which led to firmness in faith. He's also concerned whether this is a season in which their faith, instead of generating and producing fruit within them, is leading to a season of withering spiritually and of drought in the soul. And so he says he wanted to send Timothy to see if their faith was secure, to see whether they had been tempted and those tempted had led led them to a place where the word was being choked out in their life. Urgency. They see uh, more urgency in the last part of verse 5 here where he unfolds on it a bit and he says he's wondering whether his labor was in vain. He's wondering whether his labor was in vain. And this is again expressing the idea that he's concerned about whether the word was really a genuine word that led to a real and sincere conversion. 
Now, again, I must say this morning, as I highlight and stress the urgency of the need to minister to those when they're enduring seasons of affliction, one of the things that we must say right alongside it is they can't take you away from Jesus Christ. The satanic temptations in this hour cannot remove you from Jesus Christ. We love how Jesus says this uh, about those whom He called in John 10, 28. I gave them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. We absolutely love this verse because Jesus Christ, first of all, affirms the fact that if you have faith and saving faith, you received it as a sovereign and gracious gift of God. You weren't seeking after it. It wasn't yours that you lay hold of with your bare hands. It wasn't the result of your search for it. The reason why somebody has saving faith is because Christ sovereignly in a kingly act of authority subdued the soul and made them partakers and recipients of grace. And he says emphatically as he follows that up, to whomever he has poured out eternal life, to whomever he has called to salvation, they'll never perish. And the reason he gives is the double grip. They're in my hands. And underneath my hands are the hands of the Heavenly Father There's an emphatic declaration and promise that Christ, as He calls His people to grace, upholds them in grace. Now, Paul knows all of this rich theology of Jesus about preservation. He does. It's not as if he didn't get the memo about perseverance of the saints, the preservation of Christ, the double grip of the Father and the Son. But in spite of all of that, people of God, the thing that makes this... uh, sound of urgency so important for us to listen to is that the apostle here is so deeply concerned that the occasion of suffering these afflictions just might be either one, a season when Satan overwhelms them with temptations, or two, their faith, their faith would be vain. That means that we're to take this very seriously this morning by way of instruction for ourselves. Is that this is a potential peril for us when we endure seasons of afflictions. When we think about it for our applications, we just take this broader idea of the urgency of responding to those who are in affliction. First of all, we need to be instructed and warned about the power of afflictions to draw people away from faith. Part of what's here is to to warn and to instruct about the power of afflictions to draw people from faith. And here we come back to that rocky road here, which we've spoken of so much recently from Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower and how Jesus says there's different kinds of, of soil as the same seed of the gospel goes forth. And sometimes it it lands in the rocks, and sometimes in the road, and sometimes in the weeds. But this rocky road here that he speaks of does something that is so interesting to us because Jesus says when it lands on those rocks, immediately upon hearing, they receive it with joy. 
You see, this has to be something the apostle is contemplating here. The parable of the sower and the potential of a rocky road here. He knows, because he said they received the word in much tribulation with joy in verse 6. He's also aware that sometimes people receive that word immediately with joy and ends up being fruitless. That's the rest of what Jesus says. That sometimes those people who are called rocky road hearers are the first ones to say amen when the gospel is preached. Immediately they receive it with joy. Immediately they give the marks and manifestations of those who have received the word and savored the word and loved the word and are thankful for the word. And then those very same ones, Jesus say, fall away during what? Afflictions. That's what he's speaking of here, and that seems to be the concern. And it always ought to be the concern of the church, not because we're looking around to think of ourselves or our neighbor as somebody that really may not be saved. That's not the intention of any of this. It's simply to warn about the potential danger of the situation so we make sure we respond to it as we ought to. And the reason, of course, for why somebody falls away in this affliction is not on account of the Word. It's on account of them. Jesus says the Word didn't take root. The Word didn't take root. It always reminds us when we hear this admonition, it didn't matter whether we heard it every single Lord's Day from here on out. It's always important for us when we hear the admonition and the spiritual concern expressed of not mixing the hearing of the Word with faith so it takes deep root. And so that person's life who once professed faith ends in a shipwreck of faith. We're always to hear that with a certain concern for ourselves. Am I someone who is taking the word in faith so that it's rooted in my heart? Early on in the life of this church, we had a few very high-profile situations of people turning away from the faith. And I remember one morning as we gathered together as the men of this church uh, for a regularly scheduled time of Bible study and prayer that we couldn't even have the meeting because everybody there was so shaken by what had happened that they were wondering, how do we make sense of any of this? Because the people who departed give such what seemed to be overwhelming professions of faith that it seemed if they could fall, any of us could. It could happen to you too. And this is why when we hear this kind of talk this morning and this deep expression of concern and the urgency that seems to overwhelm Paul, we take it as our time to remember that we have to mix faith with the hearing of the Word so that Fruit follows from affliction 
not faithlessness. And that brings us to our second point of application here under this heading of urgency of response is that when we hear about the Apostle's deep concern and his wonder about whether the labor, think of it, he thinks of his ministerial labor of having been in vain, which means fruitless, empty, void. Paul is thinking about the ministry, the time spent in expounding the Word and catechizing with the Word and building the church up in the Word. And now he's just wondering, months afterwards, after a a lengthy season of separation and knowing the sufferings and difficulties of these believers, wondering whether it was all just for nothing. Perhaps maybe they weren't true believers or perhaps they weren't making use of affliction to grow. See, that's the other way you could interpret this, is the apostle is wondering whether they're making use of their sufferings as a time for spiritual maturing. Are they making use of the occasion of affliction to abound more in faith so that the fruit of it begins to overflow in their life? I think that's one of the things that we should take away from this is that the way the Apostle frames his concern here enables us to walk away with this this application which is that seasons of sufferings and affliction are seasons for fruit-bearing. One famous preacher put it like this, don't waste your sufferings. Oh, how we need to hear that as believers. The seasons of sufferings and afflictions are seasons for fruit-bearing. These are the seasons for laying hold of Christ. These are the seasons for being reinforced in the idea that God's Word is true. These are the seasons for doubling down in faith upon the promises and searching after God as our Heavenly Father and knowing His mercies, because God is giving them, as we're going to see in a moment, for the very purpose of building us up. So if you're suffering this morning, I admonish you to make sure, with all urgency, that you use your season of affliction as a season for spiritual fruit-bearing and being confirmed in gospel grace, reinforced in convictions and rejoicing in the truth and savoring Christ and the gospel because this is what God is appointing them for. We have this uh, expression of, of urgent concern for the Thessalonians on account of their suffering. And now we have, secondly, the manner of ministering to the afflicted, the manner of ministering to the afflicted. We've seen that urgency, but it's not enough. That's what we learn here. It's, it's not enough to, to behold the difficulty from afar and just be emotionally moved. He is moved, but second of all, he's moved to effectual action. And I think that's what's so important about our text here. Not just that we have a concern for someone, but that we understand now that there's a remedy, there's a means, there's real help for those who are enduring their sufferings and affliction. And and the first component element of that particular manner of ministry is pastoral service. 
The first part of it here is pastoral service. And we're going to unfold that a bit now as we come back into verse 1. The apostle says, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And so here we have the timing of the determination to send real effectual help. And it's a season of difficulty for the apostle himself. You, you see the plural we and then uh, being left in Athens alone. But if you'll remember from our study in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul went to Athens by himself. You'll remember that it was after a season of fruitful ministry in Berea, which was the next stop on his missionary journey after Thessalonica. He ministered there, and when the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica caught wind of his ministry there, they sent rabble-rousers down to agitate the city, and the result was Paul had to leave immediately under the cover of night out of fear for his own life. And so he was sent to Athens by himself. He left Silas and Timothy behind, perhaps because they weren't marked out or because they were less prominent. And they were left there to minister in the stead of Paul. But Paul went to Athens and he was by himself. And now you read here in verse 1 that they were all at Athens and they determined to have Paul left alone in Athens. Well, this tells us that after ministering alone at Athens for a time, Silas and Timothy caught up to him, and the result of their conversation and their praying and their strategizing is that it would be best for the Apostle Paul to deny himself and send away his ministry partners and him face the prospect of more persecution and sufferings for Christ by himself. And that's how you're to read that alone. You see, his deep concern over the saints is reflected in the fact that he was willing to sacrifice himself. Calvin notes that this is emphatic, and he says by it, he esteemed them more than himself. But then you have the determination now that flows out of this urgency. You can see it in verse 2. We sent Timothy. And you can see it in verse 5. I sent Timothy. But because of his being gripped with concern for them and knowing the potential spiritual peril and the urgency of, of the need for real ministry, he said, we made a decision. And that decision was to send a minister. See, this is the response. This is the effectual means of helping those who are in distress to send a minister of the Word to serve. And I want you to notice here that the Apostle takes a bit of time. And I, I think it behooves us this morning to just look at the ways in which the Apostle Paul uh, qualifies and amplifies upon this man Timothy because... I think we can discern in it that the Apostle is saying that this is a time when we're enduring afflictions is when we need those who are qualified and gifted and raised up by Christ to serve. And so he says, we sent Timothy. And there's a few things we can say about Timothy. We don't need to say everything we can say about Timothy. But, but one of the things that we can say about Timothy is that he was a sincere convert to Christ. 
He was a sincere convert to Christ. He was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. We hear about him in Acts 16.1 where it says that when Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy. Notice Timothy is denominated a disciple, a follower of Christ. And the obvious implication of this is that Timothy was one who had been converted under Paul's prior ministry. And the location of his owning his discipleship makes this all the more remarkable. Because you'll remember that it was in Lystra where the unbelieving Jews stirred up a pagan crowd and had Paul stoned and left for dead. This was a city that was hostile to Christ. And yet it was in a city just like that that Timothy made his following of Christ a badge. And one way we know that he was so sincere and devoted in his faith is the next thing we learn, he wore his faith on his sleeve because verse 2 says, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra. He was well spoken of. It means that his reputation was known throughout the community. And it was a reputation of being untarnished. It was a reputation for being a sincere and a devout follower of Christ. Not just in his words, but in his actions. He was a man who had been confirmed by others as being sincere. But maybe the most important thing that we can learn about Timothy as it relates to the situation of ministry need is what the Apostle says of him in Philippians 2.20. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned. Notice here that when the Apostle uh, discerns the problems that face the Thessalonians and the potential uh, spiritual peril that stands before them, he sends them a man who's known for nothing less than genuine concern for souls. And then he identifies him as a brother here in verse 2, which suggests to us that he's being affirmative about his following of Jesus Christ and his place in the family of God. And then there's a little bit of a text variant, and that's why the New American Standard Bible says God's fellow worker. But if you have the the right text here, it says God's servant. So you may have a translation this morning that says God's servant, and that's that's an accurate reading of the original text there, because um, uh, this is one of the things that the apostle is commending about Timothy. He is a servant. He's a minister of God. He's been redeemed and purchased with the blood of Christ, and he discerns then that his calling is a call to service. And then the final thing that he says is he is a fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. You see, he sends them someone who is renowned for his devotion and commitment to the ministry of Christ's gospel to souls. 
See, this is, this is what's needed. And I know the things that you're going to read about in terms of his ministry don't um, exactly sweep that out as concretely or maybe as specifically as you might want. But the thing that the apostle sends Timothy for is wrapped up in the qualification that he describes of Timothy. He is a worker in the gospel of Christ. He's sending this man to the church and to these afflicted believers with a mission, minister Christ in His mercy. Again, that's an implication of what's needed in our seasons of suffering and difficulty. So now we come into pastoral ministry. And I think this is really the heart of our text here, where he says a series of three things that I think are spiritual gold for us this morning. He says a series of three things that are spiritual gold for the saints. And so I want you to know each one of them with me as the apostle very intentionally unfolds them for the church. This is the message which... Timothy was sent to preach. Number one, it's a message and it's a mission. Strengthen and encourage you as to faith. Strengthen and encourage you as to the faith. So the very first thing that Timothy is to do, the result that he is to accomplish, the message that he is to bring, is they need to be strengthened. And this is a powerful term. This is a term that's taken from the construction world, which means to buttress or to reinforce a building so that it's firm, so that it stands. We just read uh, yesterday of a, of a building in China that was 10 stories tall that was holding all of these people were being quarantined by this deadly virus and it collapsed. And the reason it collapsed is because the support beam fell. That's not to be reinforced. That's the point of the beam. It failed to do its job. But that's the language here of our text. This is the intention that the aim of the ministry was to come alongside these saints and to reinforce them and to, to strengthen them. And one of the things that makes this term so powerful to us in our thinking is that when Paul uses this term other places, he uses it to refer to an effect that's achieved by God. If, if your Bible's open, just drop down with me in your text here to verse 13. And this is Paul's prayer wish for the Thessalonians that he, that's a capital H personal pronoun, God may establish your hearts. That's the same word. We have the same kind of prayer wish, prayer report idea over in Romans 16, 25 when he says, now to him, that is to God, who is able to establish you. You see, the result that God, that rather Paul envisions for the ministry here as Timothy goes to serve the church is that they may experience a divine operation strengthened. How? Through the ministry of the Word. You see, people of God, this is the real effectual ministry response. This is what God would have for you if you are caught up in your afflictions. To be reinforced with strength 
from God through the ministry of the Word. And what does that tell you this morning? It tells you this morning that you are entirely inadequate for your troubles. Let me repeat that again. What this implies that they are in need of a work that God and only God can do tells us this morning that we are all entirely inadequate for our own afflictions. You see, we're just not strong enough. There's no such thing as lone ranger, do-it-yourself Christianity. What we stand in need of is divine reinforcement. And the good news for you this morning, if you are facing afflictions, is there's real help for you. God stands ready to reinforce you. And I know sometimes uh, it doesn't look the flashiest as I was thinking about this this morning because my passion was to preach this particular portion of the text is I thought there may be somebody who's saying, what does that look like? What does it look like for me? And, And one of the things that I would have to say is it's not always the flashiest thing in the world. To have yourself strengthened by God in the midst of your afflictions doesn't mean they're going to be taken away. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be healed. It doesn't mean that the pain will be resolved. But the thing that it does mean is that you will have an overwhelming sense of strength operating upon your soul that you know comes from God and not from yourself. And sometimes, people of God, when we are encountering and facing the most difficult of times in our life, that is precisely the thing we need more than anything else to know we're not alone and to know that God's strength is with us. He doesn't promise to take you out. He promises to stand with you and to reinforce you. Satan seeks to tempt And God seeks to strengthen. That's encouragement for us this morning. The second thing that is a part of the message that Timothy is to bring and is also the message to us this morning is to encourage you in your faith. To encourage you in the faith. And here's one of the things about this word encourage. It means to build up through speaking words into the ears and down into the heart. But the thing that is to be encouraged, notice here, is the faith. The thing that is to be encouraged is the faith. And one of the reasons why I believe the Apostle Paul has placed it that way is because he said in verse 5, and what we saw a moment ago, that afflictions are the season for satanic temptation. And what is one of the great temptations which Satan places before the believer in their afflictions? Well, it's this, to doubt the goodness and the love of God. One of the greatest temptations to the believer in the season of affliction and suffering is to doubt the goodness and the love of God. Satan can't make you think it, and he can't make you say it, but he can prey upon your affections and emotions to the point 
that it can be that the believer can think to themselves and hopefully doesn't say it out loud, God is not a God of love. God is not good. I know that's the implication of being encouraged in the faith because what else could it be? Your entire standing in faith rests upon this. That God is a God of love. That God is a God of grace. That God is a God of mercy. That God is good. You don't have any other hope in this life than the pardoning blood of Jesus Christ. You have no other hope than the justifying and imputed righteousness of Christ. You have no other hope than union with the Lord Jesus. You have no other hope than the Spirit of God dwelling in you and your status as an adopted child and your inheritance in the heavenly kingdom. All of that is suspended, not upon us, but upon Christ and the goodness of God in giving us Christ. It's no small thing then. It's no small thing then that the message for the afflicted is encouragement. Being built up through speaking words of gospel grace, assuring us God is not just our Heavenly Father. He's a good Heavenly Father. If you need to be ensured of that this morning, there's nowhere else to look than to the cross. There's nowhere else to look than to Christ. There's nowhere else to look but beyond your situation of suffering and misery to the foundations of faith. You see, we can get so caught up in the mess and the tangled web of our own sufferings and difficulties and our angst and our doubts and even our bitterness that we can start looking away from Christ and the cross and all of those pillars which reinforce faith within us. And so this morning, here's the proclamation for you. Not just Timothy to the Thessalonians, but for us. You can know the goodness of God and the love of God for you. It's as simple as John 3.16. God so loved the world. He so loved the world. He so loved you and all of your sins that He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ. That so whoever believed in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Don't evaluate the goodness and love of God to you based upon your circumstances. Encouragement and faith is for you to evaluate the goodness and love of God to you based upon Christ, His cross, His unfailing love demonstrated there. There's a third thing that Timothy is to proclaim, and that is spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding. And you can see that spiritual understanding in the second part of verse 3. And I want us to see that word for at the outset of it all. For you yourselves know that we have been destined to this. You see, the Apostle says, I don't want anybody to be disturbed by these afflictions. And I told you I'd come back to that word disturb. And guess what? A little bit of trivia for you this morning. It comes from a Greek word that literally means a dog wagging its tail. Somehow, I can't quite understand it, they moved from there to 
unsettling things and shaking and agitation. And I said, some dictionaries even give a figurative rendering of give up belief. I don't know if it's as intense as that, but certainly it's pretty strong. The apostles' deep concern is that they not give up these afflictions. And he says the reason why. For. You see, God didn't just send Timothy with a message. He sent him with a message that had explanation. So that they would have insight. So they would have understanding. Do you know what that message of insight was? Do you know what the insight and understanding you're to have this morning? That your misery has been appointed for you by God. That's a bold message, isn't it? But the Word of God tells you this. As the Apostle says, For you yourselves know that you have been destined for this. All of your sorrows, all of your pains, all of your afflictions, all of your disappointments, all of your broken relationships, all of the great disappointments, this whole veil of tears, the apostles said, God appointed it for you. That may sound like a bitter pill to swallow this morning, people of God. Perhaps you didn't want to hear this morning that God gives you your miseries. But the Apostles' message that he was eager to get to the Thessalonians who were suffering and who were in potential spiritual peril due to satanic assault in the midst of their afflictions was to remind them of an unshakable truth. Whatever misery you have in your life, God meant it to be there because He eternally appointed it for you. That means it's tailor-made for you. It means it's for the good of you. And it'll be resolved in the plan of the Heavenly Father at His time and His appointing. But what a profoundly powerful and calming message to hear this morning, people of God, that the Lord promised you suffering. If we didn't have this text, we would already know that this is what God has for the disciple because Jesus Himself gave the course on discipleship. And 101 is this, He who would be my disciple, what? Must deny Himself and take up His cross and follow Me. If the Savior's path went through sufferings, so will yours as His disciple following Him. Appointed. Appointed. But the fact is that though they may be appointed, and that's the spiritual mindset and understanding that we're to take from this, we can see that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle communicating this message and hoping that it would have this profound spiritual impact upon them teaches us to know this morning that one way for us to become fruitful in the midst of our afflictions is to acknowledge what's true about them. Appointed by God. There's no way to sugarcoat that, candy coat it, and put some rainbows around it, and tell you that 
if you just exercise faith, God will give you only everything good. That's a delusional gospel because it's false. And what it does do is tell you that God has everything under control. And in His controlling of everything, He not only controls that circumstance of your affliction, He controls the means of your overcoming the disappointment and the pain and the sorrow of it. And that's His Word. There's a lot of ways we could conclude our text and bring it home, the application. I thought of many, but it seemed to me the one that I think we would need the most after hearing about all of these things is to be confident in the means of ministry for us and our sorrows. And the means of ministry for us and our sorrows is fairly evident here. Although we may have a very strong and powerful opponent who seeks to prey upon our soul in the midst of our sufferings and sorrows, we have one on our side who is even stronger and a means which overcomes it. And that is this ministry which has been appointed, which Paul speaks of in his sending of Timothy. When afflictions come and Satan tempts us, we can make sure that these are seasons of fruitfulness in faith if we do what God has committed to serve His church. And that is bring the word of gospel grace, of strengthening from on high, encouragement in faith, and not to be shaken by these things because they're all in the hand of a sovereign and powerful and gracious God. If we're persuaded by that, we'll be armed with the faith and the help and the grace we need to ensure that we won't be submerged and swallowed up by afflictions, but we'll endure them with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for an old word for a new situation And it's always a new situation because history unfolds, but the principles stay the same, which is that we stand as a church under the cross, which means that we live in a fallen world. Afflictions are inevitable, and inevitable not only because of fallenness, but because of your appointment. Help us, Lord, as we have been instructed by these words this morning to embrace them with faith. At the same time, O Lord, may the words be a means of strengthening us. Give us that divine effect which we can't accomplish through our words and our help, but comes from heaven's throne, strengthened, reinforced, made firm in faith, encouraged and built up, knowing of your eternal goodness and unfailing love in the Lord Jesus. Arm us with these truths so that we'll be made firm, and not just firm, but fruitful, fruitful, abounding in the grace of the Spirit in order that we may be established in Christ and serving Him with grace in our hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.